All episodes of the Garage Build Podcast are recorded live in the Law Fran Studios. The law offices of Fran Hosh, Palm Harbor, Florida. Call 1-866-LAW-FRAN or go to lawfran.com. The law offices of Fran Hosh, serving the Tampa Bay biker community for over 20 years. Afternoon. Welcome back to the Garageville Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Hallman. Hey, this episode of the Garageville Podcast is brought to you by SNS Cycles. Since 1958, SNS has led the V Twin aftermarket from innovative new ways to get air and fuel into your performance twin to big bore kits for all big twins, sportsters, and M8s to today's must have exhaust components. Choose SNS Cycles for your next performance upgrade. Visit sscycle.com and follow SNS Cycles on social media. The Arlen S Motorcycle Company saved 10%, received free shipping in lower 48 when you use the sales code GarageBill10 on all orders at ArlenNest.com. Hey, we're brought to you by Team Dream Rides in Maryville, Tennessee. It's only minutes from the tail of the dragon. Dream Rides specializes in performance engine upgrades, used bike sales, service, maintenance, and repair. Visit TeamDreamRides.com and follow Team Dream Rides Tennessee on Instagram to keep up with all the latest news. Hey, I'm going to be on the High Seas Rally this October 29th through November 5th for the only motorcycle rally on a cruise ship. One week, 3,500 bikers and four Caribbean ports. Follow at High Seas Rally on Instagram and use my code SPEEDMETAL and you're going to save 100 bucks when you book your cabin price and we're going to throw in the drink card this year. Hey, Electric Lighting features top shelf LEDs backed by 30 years of cutting edge, industry leading manufacturing and the best warranty in the marketplace. Use our code SPEED2022 and you'll get free shipping in the lower 48 on all orders at namscustomcycleproducts.com. Hey, I'm always laced up in the finest workwear from 1620 Workwear. It's premium made in the USA workwear, guaranteed for life. Visit 1620USA.com, use the discount code SPEED22 and you're gonna save 20% at checkout. Follow 1620 at 1620USA on Instagram. Hey, today's show is awesome. I have huge get. It's Mr. Tom Mosco from Drag Specialties. He's been with Drag Specialties since 1974, 48 years of product development. We talk about that. We talk about COVID, talk about all the latest and greatest stuff in the industry. And it's now time to get this thing up on the road out of the garage. You're listening to the Garage Build Podcast with your host, Jason Holman. Mr. Tom Motzko, how are you today? I'm doing great. How about you, Jason? I'm doing very well, very well. I appreciate you uh, finding time in your schedule. I know everybody's trying to get ready for the the vacations that we take in the summertime and uh, and then stir just that little event up in South Dakota that's going to happen in like four or five weeks that we're all kind of, we're all secretly scrambling, right? <laughs> to try to do all the, yeah, right. tie up all the loose ends, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think everybody's trying to get bikes ready and trips planned and hotels and everything else. Exactly. Yeah, I was texting with Paul Yaffe yesterday and he's like, yeah, he goes, my ass hurts. He goes, uh, he said 10 states, 3,000 miles in like three days or something like that. It ended up working out. Like, and I said, well, you're going to have to rest your, your backside up because in, in in three or four weeks, we're all going to go do it again. So I'll see you up in the, in the Black Hills. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Well, he does usually ride up here with a group of guys. So yeah, I can understand that. I've done it a couple of times with him in the past many years ago on some of the other rides, but yeah, you'll have a good time. Oh yeah. Yeah. So for those that don't know, um, you are, uh, you're with drag specialties and you've been there for quite some time. Um, wh what is your actual, what is your official title at drag specialties and kind of what do you oversee? You know, I, um, <laughs> I've been here good or bad since 1974. Wow. And yeah, I know, right? So like 48 years, I'm not really sure how that happened, Jason, but time just went by and here I am and I guess I'm still going strong. My actual title is vendor development um, and that encompasses so many things. I guess one thing would be developing an existing vendor that's maybe doing a million dollars with us. How do I get them to use the tools within our company? 
to do two million and the second part of it would be cultivating new business so if a potential vendor had a potential product line um, how can they do business with us on an ongoing basis can right. they develop new product can they do fitments can they do production uh, there's many questions that get involved with that but that would be the second part of, of what I would do and I work basically with the owner of the company, Fred Fox, um, and well, and everybody in the company on sales and purchasing. So, your if your involvement starts in '74, you predate Red Fox, then do you, do you not? <clears throat> oh my gosh, yes, yeah, I was. <laughs> uh, I was with Tom Rudd uh, all those years, and uh, of course, we had our own warehouses back then. We still do now, of course. Right. But we own our own seed company. Developed all that. Uh, yeah, so I got to play all those with all those people. It was wonderful. Yeah. So, what is it like when you're when you're uh, showing the new CEO around? <laughs> Here's your office, sir. <laughs> this is where we eat lunch. This is. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. You know, we're fortunate because we've gotten so many good employees over the years that have come to the Lamont's Corporation, which is the, um, the the company that owns Drag Specialties, Parts Unlimited, and a number of other companies. But uh, it's, it's really been great working with all of those people. And uh, we usually get two, three people that just come to us because they want to work for us. They, they know it's a good company, so on and so forth, you know? Yeah, I can tell you as a drag dealer since 2003, um, I've seen, you know, the kind of the arc of that, that relationship with your, uh, with your outside rep change. But I can also tell you that <clears throat> we've dealt with lots of other smaller companies and some other companies have kind of dip their toes in the water, but none of them seem to have um, the systems in place for uh, product development, you know, um, warehouse development. I know that you guys have, and we can get into this a little bit if you know anything about it or want to discuss it. I know that there was a point in time when your European facility was considered the most technologically uh, advanced uh sorting and, and fulfillment facility in Europe. This predates uh, Amazon, but that you guys were a benchmark leader in, in lots of different areas. And you don't always see that with some of the other companies, especially the ones that have unfortunately, you know, for better, for worse, they're still here, but they have changed hands several times and they have lots of different bosses that come in and go out and people use them as stepping stones where people at drag tend to stay there and and kind of you know dig their heels in and actually make a place for themselves and i think that's a key a key plate you know key part of why you're successful well there's a whole lot of truth to everything that you just said jason we most of our employees have been with us certainly over 10 years um, whether it's on the parts unlimited metric side or it's on the drag specialties v twin side um, and we continue to cultivate our warehouses. We have five warehouses in the United States domestically, right. two in Canada, and then, the, like you mentioned, the one in uh, Konz, Germany, K-O-N-Z, which you're absolutely right. That was state-of-the-art, still is, state-of-the-art uh, distribution point. And the, the idea behind all of them is to get parts in, one door and put them out the other door so dealers can get the product quickly fast so they can get everything perfectly you right. know yeah so. as expected um one of the things that that you know as a as an independent shop owner and we're three generations in here at cycle stop usa it started by my father and uh and then um with me and then now my daughter works here my father passed on a couple uh, four years ago but what is one of the things that I, you know, I know, I feel like I kind of know um, everybody or know somebody who knows everybody else. I always say this is the smallest billion dollar industry that I can think of where I'm one or two people away from being able to call the CEO of, of any given company. But as a, as a, you know, a brick and mortar store owner, you know, there's like this fearful thing that goes around. How do we put everybody at fear so that they or out of fear and put that fear to bed so that they know that they have a marketing partner and a brand partner in, in companies like Le Mans? Well, the best way I can describe it right from our owner's own mouth, founder, I'll call it, uh, Fred Fox, is we came to the dance with the dealer and we're leaving the dance with the dealer, meaning 
Uh, we believe in not routing our product through uh, mail order facilities. We do, now to, to clarify that, we do do business with mail order folks, yeah. but they're on the same level as any other uh, dealer such as yourself or anybody else. There's no special deals or anything like that. But again, we came to the dance with the dealer. We believe that uh, the brick and mortar shop, we want our customers, any retail customers, to go into that shop, develop a relationship with that dealer, with the people that work there, so that they can properly sell him the product that he needs for his riding style and maybe for his bike. Right. And so in, in, in of that, or in that there is some things that have to occur that we have to draw some parallels to. And you had mentioned about being mail order only and that not being something that you guys wanted to do. And my, my background before I was in the motorcycle industry, um, I don't know how adept you are or how well-informed you are with the car scene of things, but I worked for a company called, uh, super shops and we had 165 stores nationwide and we were the largest independently owned speed shop in the country. We bought more BF good rich tires in any company but except for general motors and we owned mallory we owned urson and then we went out of business almost overnight because we created a mailer only company to compete with us at the brick and mortar level and mm -hmm. i think the original guy was going after summit and jags but it ended up being a, the, the last coffin nail that that took that company down so it's good that you guys recognize the strength of the brick and mortar is absolutely propped up at the distribution level and at the product development level. Well, you're absolutely right on the automotive side. And I have a lot of friends that work in the automotive industry because I happen to be a car guy as well as a motorcycle guy. So I've watched that exact thing happen. And, you know, it's just kind of a structure of the world today, if you will, good or bad. I, I'll be careful commenting on that, but sure. um, everything that we do within our company right from the top down uh, revolves around keeping the dealer in business and making it work for him and having him be profitable. Right. And we do that through map policy and enforcement of that. And we also do that by being reasonable and, uh, you know, as far as margin wise and things like that. Um, some of the, mm -hmm. some of the brands that drag, um, has helped put into, I'll say help put into business and you can quantify this in a, in a much more articulate and probably nicer manner. I don't, I, you know, I don't hold it. I love the fact that a guy like Todd Silicato can develop a part and and you guys put it in your in your book and you make sure that it's available for us dealers at the level and i'm good friends with brian clock who it on another podcast he um we, we interviewed him for torque magazine last year when that was still going on he talked about his cur the the windshield that he does right the flare windshield and how mm -hmm. he you know fred fox did a very strong what i would call a parenting move right where you don't do it for somebody you don't do it with somebody but you show somebody the way where he fred fox called the bank and i'm not talking out of school because brian already said this on a podcast but that that um that fred fox actually called the bank and said okay what kind of a po do i need to give to you in order to put this young man into business and he believed in it enough and that's that's an excellent example of a product that really kind of brian clock's a very talented guy he's got a great staff around him he keeps himself in good company but that one product made all the difference in his brand right it made it a household name mm -hmm. well it, it definitely was one of those i'll call it half a dozen products within our industry that just absolutely took off. It was a great idea. And many times I've said to myself, go, I wish I'd have thought of that. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's always products out there, but you, you bring up some really interesting points, Jason, about our company. Todd Silicata is another great example, but one of the things with a couple of things, I guess, with Fred Fox uh, and all of us here, because we really do believe in the Fred Fox mentality of doing business for so many different reasons, but he really enjoyed trying to help a small business uh, develop their business and be successful. And he was not afraid to, still is not afraid of telling people how, what might work for them, uh, giving them direction, um, giving them education, He's done that all along for all these years that I've worked with Fred, and he bought drag specialties 
1988. So that's how long many of us um, have been around using that philosophy. And, and I believe a lot in karma, too. Right. You know, Fred, Fred did things right. He believes in handshakes. He believes in doing doing what you say you're going to do. And that spills over into so many aspects of not only business, but just life in general. Yeah, I mean, I think that you can be um, – sometimes when, when you are in a situation that maybe you even had a hand at creating the negative, you know, the, the negative position that you're in. I mean, because, you know, I always tell people that business isn't playing checkers. You play checkers at home on a lazy Sunday afternoon, but we're paying – we're, we're playing chess in business, right? And that doesn't mean you have to be mean. It means you have to, you have to make sure that you're making calculated, you know, taking calculated risks and making calculated moves and, and, and making sure that you don't put yourself in a position where you're checkmated down the road. So, you know, sometimes where drag, uh, seems a bit more rigid in how they do things from the dealer back to them are the same things mm -hmm. that actually ensure that we can be what you said, productive and, and we can be, uh, profitable and we can have the fill rates that we expect. I mean, we've gone through some pretty crazy stuff and I definitely want to talk about COVID because that really had a, both a, a negative and a positive impact on our business. Um, but mm -hmm. you know, it, it's kind of tough when you have all these moving parts, you have to kind of look at everything from a thousand foot view, I think sometimes. Yeah, there's, you know, there's just so many pieces to it. Like you say, uh, we try to do the right thing. Um, we, we, again, we believe in the dealer. Uh, it's, not not everything is about money, Jason. I mean, you know, at, when push comes to shove, obviously we all have to make a living. Sure. We all have to pay our bills. But the truth of the matter is, and that's what makes our company so unique over the other, maybe some of our competitors that you mentioned, um, is we believe in doing the right thing. And money isn't everything. Um so that, there's a lot to be said for that, in my mind, anyway. So. Yeah. No, I think it's important that we're in. You know what? The thing is, and, and we found this out for uh, for for during COVID, and that, that's as good a place as any to segue into that. <clears throat> None of us knew what was going to happen. We all just kind of hoped that something good would happen out of it. We hoped that it wouldn't last too long. We hoped that we would all get through it in in you know intact right and then we found mm -hmm. out that yep. you know we, some of us had some of the best years in sales that we had because people wanted to ride their motorcycles if they weren't <laughs> going to be able to be around other people it was a perfect example to, or opportunity to go out and ride <laughs> well the way i put it is apparently motorcycles became safe through COVID, <laughs> right <laughs> Who who knew? Yeah, standing standing right? closer than six feet to your friend was not safe, but somehow getting on your two wheeled machine was. That's a great analogy. Yeah. You know, and doing wheelies and having fun, and you know what else came out of the whole thing, thing too was the BRL racing, the Bagger Racing League, Absolutely. or or any of the Bagger racing. I mean, and who would have? Come on, let's be honest. Who would have thought that racing baggers at Laguna Seca, Laguna Seca? was going to be a hit. It was a major hit and a major hit for many of our vendors, people like SNS and fueling and trash and all these different people. Yeah. Led, yeah, exactly. I mean, who would have thought, you know, well, even some of the people that we, you know, I, I always have to go back to what Roland, Roland Sands said. He literally told me, he goes, I thought it was the stupidest thing I ever heard of until <laughs> until all of us got there and realized that it was probably one of the coolest things that's happened in a very long time. And there's been, so let's talk about a, some of the things that have really happened. I, I talked with Dave Perowitz um, a week or two ago, and one of the things I asked him, and, and maybe you can help me with this, because he wasn't really able to articulate it, because he wanted to go back a little bit further. But I'm looking at, so from the year 1985, and this is good because you were at drag then, from 1985 to 1999, I consider that to be a, a large area of growth in our industry. And then from 2000, obviously, I consider 2000 the gold rush era, 2000, 2006, 7, 8, all of the choppers, all of the television shows, all of the, the new riders that came in. But can you tell me what, what 85 to 99, you had the maturation of the Arlen Ness Motorcycle Company. You had drag specialties in that era was purchased by, um, by Fred Fox and then ramped up and things like that. 
what was the industry like as far as vendor development was? Because we didn't have the internet. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, there's a whole bunch going on there. Um, <laughs> you know, 85 to, you know, 99, I call it the 90s were just plain and simple insanity. It wasn't a matter of if you have it, how much is, or not how much it was, do you have it? It was just get the credit card out. It was the error of, let's be honest, FXRs, yeah. right? And and full-blown customization of Harley-Davidson motorcycles. That was really where people were really customizing them from the ground up. Uh, Arlen Ness is a good example. Dave or Donnie or any of those guys, Don yeah. Hotop, any of them, they were really going haywire stretching frames, uh, raking the frames, lowering seats. It, it was just game on. And that also developed new potential vendors that came into the market. Uh, whether they were big or small, some of those old, older vendors that have been around for a long time. In the 2000s, at least in my mind anyway, the 2000s, you're right, it was the choppers and the biker build-offs and, and all that really crazy stuff. Truth be told, business was still great, right? Sure. Um, it just it just was switching gears from you know one style maybe or a couple different styles to a whole new style, more of a niche situation. Sure. Uh, with some of them, um, and then of course 2008, everything just Im imploded. Nobody knew what was going to happen in 2008. Um, <laughs> I was I really... was so happy that I knew how to knew how to actually work on a motorcycle in 2008 that I didn't just I wasn't one of these guys that that opened a chopper shop. My dad was you know yep. my dad was very very <laughs> very particular about what we were going to do, and we had we had really doubled down and hunkered down into it and created a service department that was a dealership alternative. So in 2008, I was very fortunate that we had that my dad had pushed for that not just been right. you know running around wearing dickies clothes and uh and you know wallet chains and uh you know kickstart shovelheads well riddle me this jason what happened to all of those iron horses and all those different motorcycle manufactured bikes that got sold because there was a heck of a lot of them let's be honest When's the last time you even saw one, even at Sturgis or Daytona? Well, so at Sturgis there's, and Daytona, I don't somewhere. see it. Yeah, there's somewhere, but I, I, I have a few in my service <laughs> department right now. I'm actually, I've got a Titan that I'm doing, you know, uh, I'm, I'm polishing all the aluminum and cleaning all the fuel system out and rebuilding the carburetor. And, you know, when you look at those bikes and you kind of get, you lose some of the, uh, what I'll call like maybe the flair or the, or the, the kitschy stuff that was done. You know, the early big dogs had some neat parts on them. The Titans had some neat yeah. parts on them. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to fault yep. a, a bike that came with a Baker transmission or a Jim's transmission and an S and S engine, you know, and a rolling thunder frame and, and all those things that you used to. So that's a good question is, so what happened to the fat book when those bikes were just what you could buy? I mean, you were buying a done bike at that point that everybody put, they, the people who bought those thought they were buying a custom bike. You and I both know right. they were buying a bike that looked like a custom bike that went down a, some sort of assembly line of, of sorts. Well, we were fortunate, I guess we still are fortunate that we've got such a selection of products within the fat book and the old book yeah. that it really didn't affect us all that much, to tell you the truth. Those guys, there still was a lot of products on those bikes that you could sell them out of the fat book, whether it was tires or wheel bearings or clutch and brake levers, mirrors, you know, those kind of things. There still was a heck of a lot there. And... They had to maintenance them. Yeah. You know, they still had to change oil and filters and, you know, all those things that are just staple products for any uh, dealership. Isn't you know? it? So, mm -hmm. I was going to say, isn't it funny when you look back on, um, and this isn't to besmirch any of that, it was just to say that you had so many companies that were trying to do kind of what I would consider um, 
you know, they really got in their own head and started to create their own proprietary stuff. And I think that was kind of the downfall of, of Big Dog, who was arguably the juggernaut in, in that segment where they were, had their own primary and their own transmission that didn't work with anything, their own clutch plates that didn't work with anything. And then the electronics were so compromised once there was a problem. I mean, I have big dogs that come in here that I'm like, listen, there's not really a solution for you besides rewiring the entire motorcycle. So, uh, you know, those, they found themselves kind of painted into a corner when things got tight. Absolutely. It, yeah, no, that's a very true statement. And the way I deem that is they out trick themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For sure. You know, they really, they really did. They, they, they weren't as uh, smart as they maybe thought they were. Um, and then, you know, that's you're absolutely right. Now a dealer gets that system in there, that bike in there. They can't even change the darn primary chain because it's a special one. Yep, exactly. You know? Like a big dog. Uh, <laughs> I found out the hard way. The the later big dogs, <clears throat> the stator is out of a certain kind of forklift. That and there's a company in North Carolina that makes that stator. I'm like, why? Why would you do that when you have cycle electric and CompuFire? And I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, what's wrong with a 32 amp system in a in an Evo motor? Why do you have to? Yeah, have and, your own and it's stuff? a proven winner. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Proven, yeah. So I, you know, what I, where it really goes sour is the poor gentleman that owns or lady that owns mm -hmm. that that particular bike, and they bring it into your shop to get something repaired like that, and it costs them three times as much because you don't even have the products, you know, you might even have to make something, you know? Yeah. So unfortunately the retail person, uh, takes the hit on that. Yeah, so, they absolutely do. Yeah. Um, and you know, Hey, buyer beware sometimes on some of that older stuff. I mean, you're a car guy. So, you know, you've, you've, how many times have you gone and, and just, you you know, like I'm a, uh, right now I'm, I'm secretly, my wife doesn't know I'm secretly searching, uh, for a, I want a 66 Bel Air post car. Oh yeah. And so mm -hmm. I've got kind of a little hankering for that. And, and there's, there's a method to my madness, but you, you look at these old cars and it's amazing what people want for them and the things that need to be done and how much they're trying to sell a, a $10,000 car that in the photograph, you can see a tree growing up through the floorboard. It's like, <laughs> it's yeah. literal. You know uh, what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. And you know, I have three really bad vices, Jason, and that would be motorcycles, cars, and guitars. So I can pretty much spend any extra money i have no problem it's gone <laughs> yeah i've i have spent a lifetime's worth of money already that I, on things i haven't even i haven't bought yet <laughs> well i finally have come to the realization that there's simply not enough time left in my lifetime to get all of the cars and motorcycles i need so now i'm starting to prioritize right <laughs> right you're, you're only getting the ones you really yeah i mean i've i've been yeah. been selling off some of my older stuff that's still nice i'm like okay if i haven't used this in a while it's kind of like an old facebook friend it's like if i haven't been in the same room with you in over a year are you are we really friends <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so, um, something else that I wanted to kind of talk about is, um, in, in this, everybody pretty much knows this. And if you don't know, you'll, you'll know here you're, you are a member of the hamsters organization. And I talk a little bit about that. I've had, you know, several of the hamsters on, on the podcast. And one of the things that I always talk about, and I want to make sure that people know is that it's not just a, not just a t-shirt club with a motorcycle addiction that you guys do some pretty amazing work, uh, you know, in community, in the communities that you all live in. And, uh, I went before the board last year and I'm looking forward to one day being a part of that too, and kind of doing my, my own things here in Florida. But, um, I was in a room last year where we started with zero dollars and zero cents in a matter of three hours, we had put together over $500,000 uh, for, for local <laughs> charities in and around, um, the South, you know, rapid city and, mm -hmm. uh, and Sturgis, South Dakota. And even <clears throat> I think Deadwood, the uh, meals on wheels program got, uh, we quadrupled their budget in what they were going to have for the year by the end of that dinner. What is it you've been in, you've been a member of that organization for a long time. What is the, how do you describe it? Well, there's a lot of misconceptions about the hamsters, especially back in the nineties. You know, mm -hmm. like you brought up earlier, there's just a lot of misinterpretation going on there. Uh, I've been in it for an awful long time, since 1988 or 89. So I really got in a long, long time ago before there was a big procedure to it and everything. But right. 
the, a lot of people, the misconception is that it's a bunch of rich guys that, you know, either bought a motor, custom motorcycle or just had it built. Well, the truth of the matter is it's, it really circles around custom motorcycles first and foremost. Right. If you do not have a custom motorcycle, which not everybody's capable of building, like maybe yourself and, and myself, right? Right. But the point is it is revolves around custom motorcycles. So that's first and foremost. Second of all, you really have to fit into the group. Now, we have over 300 folks, and we've had a couple of guys that unfortunately had to leave because the – weren't as cool as they thought, right? Right. They weren't they weren't fitting in. They didn't get along with everybody. And it's really, honestly, a group of friends that enjoy custom motorcycles and enjoy riding them. Back in the day, it was more it was really more um, uh, builders, industry people, that type of thing. But that's when it was a small group of, I'll call it 50 or so. Right. And it's obviously changed over the years. It, it has to change. Sure. Right, just like everything else. But, um, and many of the folks that are in it, uh, if you like it or not, they, they do have uh, some good funds. They have some good money. They're business people, but they enjoy custom motorcycles and riding them and so on. So when we do these auctions and charity events we're fortunate that we have those folks in our group that can really uh, help people that need it on an ongoing basis and whether or not you can donate a thousand dollars or fifty dollars it doesn't matter we're all trying to help the same cause yeah it was it was sobering uh, is the only word i know how to uh, to to use a, the, the only superlative that I can apply to that situation is I was sitting in that room and I just watched it kind of happen and everybody was moving <laughs> everybody was moving in kind of a hive towards the same goal and and when you when you have that that's a, it's really tough to do to get three hundred and some odd folks into the same the same vibe I mean you know there's 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 artists that can do that there's other you mm-hmm. know there's other situations social situations churches things like that and that's the closest thing i could i could even put towards i was it was kind of almost like uh, a quasi religious thing when you're when you're watching everybody kind of move and be happy and in the same place <laughs> it was it was really very very cool and so i i used this opportunity to kind of champion what what that is because i i think people see yellow shirts and they don't they don't necessarily understand all the other things that are done and all the good work that's done together as a group yeah that is true the thing the comment that kept, always comes up at at th- those events and you you probably heard it is it's all about the kids all about the kids right? absolutely it's all about the kids and that came that comes up more than more often than not for sure and what's really fun about the whole thing is we can see the good that our donations do because we do get a report of what we were able or what they were able to purchase to help these needy children or needy families. It's, you know, it really is an amazing thing and it's a a great thing to be a part of uh, all these years, I guess. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I mean, so we get, there is a negative stereotype attached to quote unquote, the word biker, right? And then these biker rallies, if you look at some of the ones that have, have kind of shrunk over time, I mean, it's pretty well documented that the city of Myrtle Beach, South Dakota, or excuse me, South Carolina, there's some people there that are not really fond of that event being there for, for whatever reason. I, I don't know if they, mm-hmm. if it's, I, I don't know where it comes from. And then there's the, the town of Daytona. I mean, if, if we want to talk about a town that really has changed the, the landscape of, the community and does not necessarily embrace the community in a, in a favorable manner anymore was, you know, it used to be main street, beach street and the pier. Right. And then there's the roadhouses out on one. And now when you go to Daytona and I'm sure you go there every year, you have beach street is all kitschy little, uh, you know, shops here and there, apothecaries and restaurants and things like that. And main street is still, there's still bars that are not open that have never reopened since 2008 that are still standing down there on main street and it's like wow you know you have to go out to destination to see a lot of the stuff you have to go to the speedway to see a lot of the other stuff you have to 
go to the roadhouse. It's like it's it's kind of blown apart because by and large, uh, I think the the community doesn't realize how much revenue we put in. So when you look at that and you look at Sturgis and how they welcome us, uh, you know, anywhere between two, three hundred thousand up to half a million people in a town that houses five or six thousand people or certainly less than ten thousand you know on on the off the off months from sturgis and we have a good reputation there people are treated with respect with respect there you know and and a lot of that has to do with the goodwill that's put out by by the hamsters and and i think people should know that i think people in the riding community should know that 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 you know you guys have single-handedly built a hospital for children you make sure that not only did you build the hospital for children but that you support it every year each and every year and th those monies stay in, in that area and so that makes us uh, ambassadors of goodwill if you will, in, in that space. And I think that it speaks for bikers across the globe when, when you do something like that. Well, again, you know, I say this a lot. Um, there's a lot of truth to every one of those uh, comments that you just made. And there's a lot of other groups, not just, well, obviously not just the hamsters, sure. but there's a lot of groups that really help so many people. Uh, Sturgis is kind of a... Uh, an anomaly, if you will, just because it's out, it's the Wild West type of thing, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. It's, there isn't that many people living out here. They rely on uh, the funds of Sturgis uh, uh, statewide. Sure. A good example of that is from July 1st all the way till Sturgis, the whole state is so excited about everybody coming. I mean, they're just jazzed, you know, and, and you get good reports all the way across the the state for that whole month because everybody's excited. Sure. You know? um, but man alive, um, you're right. We get, you know, three to 500,000 people out here. I mean, I've been in Spearfish for 20 years. So I've, and I, before that, I was coming to the rally since 1982. So I've seen a lot of changes. Right. Um, and, and that kind of segues right into what you were saying is different cities handling rallies differently. And, you're absolutely right, but by the same token, everything changes and people's attitudes change. And, uh, you know, Myrtle Beach is probably a good example. Uh, yeah. So, so, you know. So one of the things that, um, just to switch gears a, a little bit on this, is, you know, there is a group of individuals, and unfortunately you've already outed yourself on, on that you're part of this group. Part of this older group of of individuals that are still enjoying the rallies and still active in the community still active in the industry you know driving largely what we're seeing is as far as product development and vendor development and how we're going to be how, how products are going to be sold and distributed um how do we replace uh, the people that are cycling out of the industry and get younger people in, engaged. And I want to, I, I don't want to put you in a position where you have to say something you don't want to say publicly, but I would like to push you for kind of how you feel Harley Davidson is doing with their role in that and how you feel Indian is doing with their role in that. Well, I think, you know, truthfully, I think that everybody over the last, oh, I don't know, let's use five to eight years as, as the measuring stick has really realized that, you know, we all need younger people involved in, in our industry. Now that said, I also think we all would agree that over the last two years through COVID and everything else, we've seen, I've seen so many more younger people being involved with uh, motorcycling in general, whether it's because of the bagger racing situation, um, maybe some of these uh, stunt rider people, uh, even some of the vendors, I'll use Bassani as a good example, has enlisted so many of these younger people on Dinas and Sportsters, uh, the stunt people. And the truth of the matter is I've seen more younger people, and we do monitor it pretty closely, Jason. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen a lot over the last five years. We've seen a lot more younger people show up to Daytona, Sturgis, Arizona Bike Week, um, and it's great to see these folks. I mean, people like uh, Lance Curry from uh, yeah, from uh, Thrashing. Yep, he's a good I mean, example. Him and all this. I mean, there's a good example, you know, and that's just one of. I could throw you out ten different names. I think that Harley Davidson. Is doing is doing a good job. Indian has a great product. They're doing a nice job. They're developing products for these people. 
Um, I'd like, personally, I'd like to see them get a little more uh, aggressive on their retail pricing so that younger people uh, would be able to jump in on them a little bit easier, but there's a lot of pieces to that puzzle too, right? Yeah. I think net, 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 I think net, 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 there's more younger people now involved in motorcycling than there was five years ago, a lot more. Well, that's, that's good to hear. And I, and I know you're, you're data driven. I know that you're somebody that looks at the data and somebody that has the data, you know, uh, Le Mans probably has, you know, uh, I would imagine a team of people that know how to populate that kind of information, how to collect that kind of information and turn it into something that's, that's usable data. So you'd know which direction to head. Um, what do you tell, what would you say to somebody right now? If you're, let's say you're standing at the rally and, and folks know who you are, you're at the drag tent and you have somebody that a young couple that comes up and, and they want to have a brick and mortar store. What is the one thing you want them to take away when, when they walk, when they walk away from you? What do you want them to know? Like, what have you learned in the last 40, 48 years that you want to go, Hey, listen, you guys <laughs> need to look at this as a number one metric. Well, I, I, I think a good way to, to describe that and we believe me we have that exact conversation at at every rally or every event um i guess i would want them to understand that we believe in a brick and mortar place like we talked about right. earlier and number two is that we have such a eclectic selection of product that we have in stock and to use your words earlier fill rates right we want our fill rates to be in the 90 percent tile right um we don't our company doesn't necessarily care about inventory dollars we want the product sitting on the shelf i don't know about you but i never got paid for a back order right no yeah right so so i would tell those that young couple uh, those maybe those two or three things to at least get them started, um, and we believe in having a legitimate business, um, brick and mortar place that's uh, not necessary that's not on your home property that's open business hours, uh, you know a legit business and we'll help you with our salespeople because we have over 50 some road reps that are seasoned riders they're all riders oh yeah. They would come in. They would come in and tell you, be able to show you what is selling in your area. They'd be able to train them. Uh, they don't want to load them up with stuff they can't sell. We want them to reorder product. So I hope that answers your question. But I guess a personal touch, if you will. Yeah. So that starts the the, con the next conversation you want to have. You've talked a lot about product development and vendor development, and one of the things, the biggest thing I think that Drag is in the business of is dealer development, and that's something that, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, what what sets Drag apart? And and I'm only asking what sets Drag apart because I know you have so much experience in the, in that space, and I and I don't feel like uh, I don't feel like I, although Tom Motzko is mutually exclusive from Drag, I feel like you are one of the people that have helped Drag be what we know it is today. So this is, you're an important person in all of this, that your legacy at that, that company, your DNA is gonna be in that company for a very, very, very long time because it's been there for a very long time now. So you're also in the dealer development side of that. And I don't think enough people talk about that. Well, dealer development, um, you know, is obviously a more of a sales uh, piece of our company than, than I'm involved with. But um, like I've kind of alluded to during out during the conversation is we have a complete dealer development uh, department but more importantly the people that are in our dealer development program and or sales department have been here for quite some time for the, the majority of them my point being is they understand how we operate how the company operates and what those dealers need to succeed because we obviously we want them to succeed just like just like you do yeah right yeah you need them to. um yeah yeah we need them to we all need them to for so many different reasons so i guess that would be the comment i would make on that you know sure well i just wanted to allude to the fact that, that you know it's not you said earlier in the in the interview that it's not everything isn't about money right so the relationships right. that we have the the ability to, to develop in this 
in in this industry. Case in point, I'm having a conversation with you that we've never really had a conversation other than just exchanging pleasantries and introducing ourselves to one another at the BRL in Utah last year. That, but I've always known who Tom Motzko was because I've been a drag dealer from since 2003. So you know, you kind of you orbit in these same circles, and um, you know, I feel like we've lost some of the tools. Uh, the, of the mm -hmm. trade, and we've. I want to make sure that we replace them properly. One of the tools that I think we've lost in this industry, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about it, was the V Twin Expo. Mm -hmm. Yes, right, exactly. The V Twin Expo was my friend Jim Betlock that worked for us for yeah. many, many years for drag specialties, and then went to Easy Riders. That was his brainchild. Yep, he was the guy, and you're absolutely right. That was the catalyst for the whole season because if you remember that started out that was in february february and yeah oh my gosh that was uh yeah we all missed that it was him know? and uh, his wife um marcy right Mer meredith meredith okay yeah so yep, meredith. Uh, there was a darcy betlock at one point uh also uh, she was yep. the, their daughter or something yep. right yeah that's correct Okay, because I know that she was she did some representation for for uh, I believe Jesse James at one point in time. But so the 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 V Twin Expo is gone. I I would love more than anything because, like you said, it kicked it kicked the year off. It give everybody mm -hmm. you know being being a kid that grew up in the Midwest. I'm in Florida now, but being a kid that grew up in the Midwest, um, you can relate to this. Summer's over. You go to you get home from Sturgis. You get a few more rides in. Everybody puts their bikes up on jacks, and you're you're going through the bearings uh, in the wheels, and mm -hmm. you're checking the brake fluid, and you're checking all that stuff, and maybe you're putting a new cam in, or you're having their cylinder heads ported, right? And then everybody's getting everything ready. You go through Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and then the V Twin Expo. You get to see all the new, latest, greatest stuff. Put your hands on it. All the stuff you saw in the magazines. Um, do you think that there's a, a place? For something like that now, or do you think the the proliferation of the internet and the, how fast information moves that it's antiquated and unnecessary? Yeah, well, I think you know that's you bring up a good point there. The internet, uh, sending out information on new products uh, mm -hmm. from vendors, has really changed it a lot over the last few years uh, regarding trade shows. We do our own program, as you're probably aware of, mm -hmm. uh, Drag Specialty does, or Lamont's Corporation, which is called NVP, National Vendor Presentation, and we do two of them a year. Now, and our first one after COVID is coming up here now in Madison, Wisconsin again, which is home base, basically. But that is exactly what that is, is a trade show highlighting our vendors and bringing in all those dealers of ours that want to attend. And basically what it is is a Cincinnati, Jason. Yeah. And we've had, honestly, I'm not saying it because I work here, it, it's worked. It's, it's that personal touch. It's talking to the guy you do business with. It's having a dealer such as yourself walk up to uh, somebody from Barnett, Mike from Barnett, Mike Taylor from Barnett, and introducing yourself and, gal, I use your products and that clutch sure works good and so on and so forth. And that goes right back to what you said just a couple minutes ago regarding our dealers and salespeople, which is relationships. Yeah, so it's so a, it's a it's quality so over quantity, you know, in, in, in that, yeah. you know, it's not just a room full of everything and anyone. It's really a room full of the people that are contributing to the, to the success, the overall success of our industry. And, and you brought up a, a great a great company. So Barnett is, you know, long, they've been around forever. You have SNS <laughs> been around forever, right? So these, mm -hmm. the fact that our industry has so many people that are at the foundation of it, that are still innovating, still coming up with new products, still coming up with new innovative things and hiring new young people to help develop those things is a credit to, to what we do. Absolutely. And it's that's I was just gonna mention too, that's some of the biggest struggles of any of these companies is finding technically orientated folks to work there that really know motorcycles and are hands-on and no matter what industry you're in right now whether it's uh, bars or restaurants or anything you know everybody's having trouble getting people but that's probably the biggest struggle that any of our vendors have right now mm -hmm. is just getting the and, and our company as well getting proper technical people you know that can really answer a question legit you know right. what i mean yeah that have some experience so yes 
<clears throat> let me switch gears real quick and talk about something that's um, this will be the, the, the only thing that we talk about that's not so positive, but I want to put a positive spin on it. You know, fill rates, we want to keep them at 90%. Obviously, you know, tires are at a shortage. Uh, there's certain parts that are made offshore that are at a shortage. Can you, from a, not from a drag specialties um, point of view, but from a, a worldly point of view and a wise point of view, consult people like my that own shops like myself and say look this happened before at this time or this is what we think is going to happen this is what you need to do to pivot i mean how do you how do you console people on this because i'm sure that people inside drag are beside themselves with not being able to get product because you know we're trying to sell it at the, at the grassroots level and you guys are trying to make sure that it's there for us well first of all no nobody and I mean nobody, including car manufacturers and everything else, ever thought this would happen. You know, shortages, chip storage shortages. I mean, just everything that's happened in the last two years, who the heck would have thought, right? Right. So nobody could really prepare for it, number one. Number two, the biggest struggles that we've had, and I think our competitors have had in the last two years, you're right, tires is one of them, but remember that Sales were so good a year ago, year and a few months ago. I mean, people were buying tires like they were going out of style because they were riding their motorcycle, right? Right. Battery batteries were another one. Batteries are ones that that were still we're still struggling with both of them, and nobody really ever expected all of this to happen. Um, our overseas product now, our company, we this this is probably good information for for everybody, but. The companies that trading companies and factories that we deal with in Taiwan, and we don't buy a, we buy a fair amount from Taiwan, but we've dealt with those same companies for over 40 years. Yeah, Taiwan's not so a bad is, partner. Taiwan is, is a good no, partner. No, we don't, on the drag side, we really don't deal with anything in China. We don't buy anything direct from China or anything. So we really didn't have any problems with any of that. But those companies in Taiwan, like I say, we've been dealing with them for 40 years. These are old friends. Right. Um, so we're, I've been to all those factories 13 times. They know how to make product, right? Right. So uh, it's getting better slowly. The battery shortage is getting better. Um, cars are still tough, you know, tough getting a new one. Right. And then you throw in the inflation piece of the puzzle. That's a whole other mess for all of us, you know. Sure. And, you know, all, all of the companies that we deal with, you know, you can just pick any one of the vendors. Those poor guys have gotten price increases on raw materials, uh, components they can't get. You know, maybe they need a special clamp or something that they were getting from overseas that they've had to resource. So it's been a, a real learning experience for our entire industry. So, well, for, as, so that's why I wanted to bring up. 1985 to 1999 earlier because i think that mm -hmm. was our first boom now correct me if i'm wrong i mean i'm talking real boom where you said yep. you had made a couple comments it wasn't a matter if uh what it cost it was a matter of could you get it and here's my credit card right so i consider that to yep. be the first real boom now what i consider a boom is where we're creating um we're creating new new consumers from the outside, not creating new consumers from the inside. I'll give an example, a guy you went to high school with, um, you guys, let's say you graduated around 71, 72. He's not into bikes. You're into bikes. You get him into bikes. That's not really from the outside. I'm talking about 1985 to 99. People are walking by the, the magazine rack and you've got this beautiful bike built by Don Hotop with amazing paint on it or Donnie Smith or Dave Perowitz enter, enter anyone's name that was really big back then. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're bringing consumers in from the outside and creating it. So there's this big boom. Is is this the time for us to have the conversation about things being made in the USA? And I'm not talking just about motorcycle parts. I'm talking about raw materials. I'm talking about the stuff that we pack things in, the things that we ship things in. Have we, as a nation, forgotten uh, what, what got us to where we were at? Well, I I think anyway, you know, my view on that is we, at least in our industry, uh, 
we would we would love to be able to make every product that we have, no matter what vendor it is, every product that we carry, we we all would like to have them made in the USA, right? I mean, right. that's the truth of the matter. Sure. Unfortunately, it it the reality is that just can't happen. Uh, good example is spark plugs, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you just it just can't happen. Um, we try to keep as much as we can in the United States. Uh, a big advocate of that, of course, is our friend Bert Baker. I mean, yeah. everything he has is made in the States, and, and he's advocated for that all these years, and he's right. But in his particular case, he's able to do that uh, with the product line that he has. Um, I wish, I guess we all wish we could make more in the States. The truth of the matter is, if some of these products were made in the States, they'd be a heck of a lot more expensive than they are right now. And the the quality might be a little bit better. Golly, we'd all love to do it, but it's tough. Well, so so you mentioned that you you know the drag specialty doesn't buy anything direct from China, and that you have good marketing partners in Taiwan. And, and I know that that's a you know I was a BMX kid, so uh, you know when I was mm-hmm. when I first started BMX in in the early '80s, everything was made in California, right? You wanted to go to SoCal. That was my dream was to go to SoCal and ride some of those tracks and do that. And then you started seeing uh, a lot of stuff being made in Taiwan. ROC, I remember that it would say made mm-hmm. in Taiwan. ROC, Republic of China, right? And so there, but. More when I was a kid, if my dad had a tool and it said made in the USA, I mean, that, that kind of meant something. And I, and yep. I, I wanted to allude to the fact that, you know, maybe now's a good time to start having the conversation about paying attention to that a little bit more than maybe we have in, in the last couple of decades. Right. Yeah. I sure can't, I, I sure can't argue that fact. I, I totally agree with you, you know, love to do it. Yeah. Well, and so, I mean, it's, is it because what is it? The main thing, is it because CAD programming is so easy, it's easy to copy or it's not a lack of of ingenuity. You're the vendor development guy. You, you have to be inundated with uh, new ideas from people that you don't already know uh, all the time. I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. You know, our entire staff uh, is inundated with that from different people, whether it's on the parts and limited side or the drag specialty side. And, you know, we've got some great partners in the States. Again, I'll go back to Barnett. Um, I just had our new national sales manager on drag for drag visit Barnett just last week and was amazed that they make everything right there. Right. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, and most of the, let's just use clutch plates as a good example, sure. uh, whether it's BDL or, or uh, anybody else, they're all making them here. There's very few of that type of product that's made uh, overseas. So try to keep it here. Sure. And, and and I think we do a very good job of it in our industry. And, and I was really talking more on a global scale earlier. I was certainly not trying to lead anybody down a path of, of you know, because I, I do think that there's a lot of people in, in our in our industry that champion champion that what is the what is the brian we got a few minutes here before we wrap up but i wanted to talk about on the vendor development side of things what is that process like i mean i'm sure you know i have a lot of people that listen to this podcast you know guys like justin page from my machinist and you know boosted brad from death metal racing parts these are guys that are incredibly talented um they're kind of one-man shows and they build an amazing part i've got some of their parts on my bike and i'm friends with both of these guys um what is the process of not specifically, I don't want to say, Hey, call this guy and do this. But I mean, what is the process? A new product gets developed. The guy's using it. There's some people buying it. Uh, does drag go out and find this person or does this person go to drag and say, Hey, I'd like to be, I'd like to be considered. Well, I think a little bit of both. I mean, back in the nineties when product development was really booming, it was kind of a word of mouth, you know, geez, I'm dealing like Don Holtop would say, right. geez, I'm dealing direct with drag it's working great uh you know give them a try call this guy so on and so forth the the fact of the matter is good or bad we're a huge company we like to try and operate it small but it's a big company sure you you gotta have you got first of all you really have to have a product line Mm -hmm. can't be one or two items it's not even worth unfortunately it sounds terrible but it's not even worth our time to get involved for one or two products sure number two most people most potential manufacturers don't understand margin of profit uh, compared to percentage above. So it gets complicated. They think that 
they've got all this margin built into it when they really don't. So it's kind of a math uh, education situation, right? We sure. have to go to put them through school, which we do. We try and they to might help not, them. Because they might not be charging what they, they probably should be charging yeah. a bit more than what they're already charging. If their goal right. is to be in someone else's catalog, everybody kind of has to have enough. And it's not that they have to make enough money. We, everything's not about money, as you said, but there has to be enough money to move the product from the manufacturing facility to the mm -hmm. sorting facility, from the sorting facility into the into the pro, the end user, like the, the brick and mortar star, shop. And there has to be marketing along the way as well. Yeah, and it's, you know, our job is to get the product out to the dealer quickly. Sure. Our, it's not our job to uh, develop a demand for the product. That's the manufacturer's job. So it gets, there's so many different pieces to it. Can, can they really manufacture the product on an ongoing basis? Can they deal with purchase orders from potentially five or four or five different warehouses? Right. Can they, the, the 2022s just came out. Do, does their product fit? What does it fit? Does it fit sportsers, this, that? I mean, what does it fit? Um, it's, it, it, there's way more to it than people really realize and we're happy to walk through the process to them in a lot of cases i'll tell them geez you know man i hate to say it, you're just not ready for us we can almost put somebody out of business if their product line does really take off yeah inadvertently follow me yeah and and we have a the way i handle it jason is i have a straight on honest conversation with them explaining all the as much as i can pros and cons of the whole situation and i always tell them look we may not do business right now but at least you're going to walk away knowing more than you knew five minutes ago you're going to have hopefully a good feeling about our company and about me personally and maybe down the line we can do business um, if not Continue selling it like you are, maybe dealer direct or to your friends yep. or however you're doing it. Build the brand, get the thing going a little bit, and let's talk in another year or two and go from there. And you know how many people I've had quite a number of potential vendors say, God, am I glad I did that. I'm, I'm glad you told me that yeah absolutely absolutely that's good that's the, you know and sometimes the the what you walk away from is better uh, than than the thing that you that you try mm -hmm. to you can't force a square peg into a round hole so well it's got it's got to work for both of us jason it's got to be you know they want to get reorders we want to reorder we wanted an ongoing long-term relationship not a one or two or three year deal and then have people walk away upset on right. both sides, right? Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Well, listen, Mr. Motzko, I appreciate your time today. I know you're extremely busy. I'm going to see you Saturday, the first Saturday of uh, Sturgis up on the hill there. I'll be I'll oh, be awesome. up there and uh, I'll shake your hand. And uh, I really appreciate your time today. Have a great day. Yes, and you're welcome anytime. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.